without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same, this man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And notice verse 14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I want to sort of maybe shift gears a bit today uh, than what I would, my standard style of preaching, but I want to preach a message this morning entitled, Three Cries That Changed the World. Three Cries That Changed the World. Our Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts in the name that's above every name. The name of Jesus, your word says every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so today we willingly bow our hearts, we willingly bow a knee and we accept and receive you for everything you claim to be, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of all lords and God today we need to hear your voice. We recognize your presence, we want to feel your presence, we want to hear your spirit speaking to us, and Lord, it's been my prayer that this wouldn't just be uh, just this sort of uh, mundane Christmas gathering or just a time that we, that we come together out of duty, but Father, that you would work miracles in hearts, God, that you would do something in us that we could never do for ourselves. Even banded together, God, we can't carry through this world like we need to without your help. We pray that you'd fill us. God, we pray that you'd speak to us, give me the wisdom to say everything that needs to be said. I pray that your spirit would direct every aspect of this service, and we'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Excuse me. The non-filters get to you after a while. <coughs> but, you know, if we're, if we're really going to examine the, the immaculate incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to go back, as John did in verse number one, to in the beginning. We have to go back way before Bethlehem. We have to go back to when the clock of creation began to talk. When God made man in his image, he did it with his eyes wide open. Now, here's what I mean by that. He knew exactly what would become of creation. God knew exactly, just as any insightful parent understands, that life is not a series of happy scenes. When you bring a child into this world, right, we understand that bringing children into this world is not always going to be joyful. It's not always going to be pleasantries. It's not always going to be bountiful. There's not always going to be seasons of, of wealth and happiness. In fact, bringing a child into this world, we do so, as, as parents who are sober-minded, we do so understanding that they will face heartache, understanding that they will face difficulties, understanding that life is going to hurt them at times, but that life itself is sometimes cruel. And so when God made man in his own image, know that, that God knew that sometimes life would bring great heartache and devastation. God knew unless he created a race of mindless drones, 
that man would eventually choose his own self-depreciating desires over the will of the God that made him for eternal glory and purpose? Do you think God didn't know before he made mankind that mankind would eventually choose his own desires? Do you think that God didn't know before he ever spoke the world into existence that one day the world would come under this curse of sin, that the world would be under this bondage? God understood fully that if given the opportunity, man would choose his own way above the will and the way of the God who created him. Evil articulated the emptiness in the heart of every man and woman ever born into this world. In fact, the moment that the human race chose its own stubborn pathway, the world was at that point plunged into a cacophony of pain and emptiness and ultimate death and darkness. And now today, like a cancer, darkness consumed the soul of humanity and the systems of this world were infused with greed and an insidious desire for personal pleasure. Throughout history, day after day, blood has been shed as the race for world domination marches on. Kings and kingdoms will rise and fall, and it seemed like the earth would never again be what it once was originally designed to be in the Garden of Eden. See, because of the fact that God made man in his image, we're known the Latin term, this is where we'll get real fancy, the only fancy part of the sermon, I'll drop a little actual Latin on you. There's a term that we use, it's imago Dei which means in the image of God, meaning that when God reached down, you've probably seen the old painting where there's a hand reaching from the heavens and a hand from the earth reaching and coming together. That is the picture of God creating man in his image. We understand in the Genesis account when God created us in his image, the Bible tells us that everything else in creation God spoke. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. The evening and the morning were the first day, and we follow this series throughout Genesis chapter 1 where where God just commands the world to come into existence. And so if people say, do you believe the Big Bang Theory? I absolutely do. I believe that God spoke and bang, everything happened. That God literally commanded the world and everything in it to appear. You say, that's crazy. It's not as crazy as thinking everything got here by accident. Right? Throw a bunch of glitter into a fan and see if it comes together in some semblance of order. Disorder, chaos never produces order and, 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 and intelligence. We have to understand that everything in creation was spoken by God, but when God made man, the Bible tells us that there was a shift in that moment. That instead of speaking, instead of standing afar off and commanding the presence of humanity, the Bible tells us that God reached down and he picked up the clay and it says he formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Mankind was, was immediately and literally infused with the very Spirit of God in his origin. That's what it means to be in the image of God, the imago Dei made in his image. God breathed life into mankind, and man was born. But once again, as God, if he had created a race of robots, if he had created a, a, a mindless uh, humanity or race of drones, then, then no doubt man would have never made the wrong decision. But man left to himself, man given his own free will, always wants to be his own God, always wants to be the master of his, of his own destiny. And so given the opportunity, man made the decision to go in the opposite direction of God. 
Now, don't let the critics and the cynics and the atheists oversimplify this concept, this notion, by saying something ignorant and irreverent like, well, you know, I guess, you know, man ate an apple and now we're all going to hell for it. That's not at all what happened. First of all, it wasn't an apple. Did you not know that? (laughs) See, you're learning something today. We don't know that it was an apple. It could have been anything. It just says the fruit of the tree, but uh, that's beside the point. The point is that it, was, it wasn't that simple. It wasn't the fact that there was this tree that he couldn't eat from, and God said, you're a bad little boy if you do. It was the fact that without an option, man would never have chosen the opportunity to walk in the presence of God on his own. God placed the opportunity for mankind to make a decision for himself, and man by his own free will always chooses to go that direction. Now, before we get too upset with Adam and Eve, just know that at some point we all would have made the same decision. Because we're all stubborn, we're all self-willed, and by our nature, we make bad decisions. The one thing that gave hope throughout history, if we were to sort of examine how things unfolded, the one thing that always gave hope to the God-fearing people of the earth throughout history was, was a promise made by God himself that one day the Messiah would come and redeem their lives from the oppressive kingdoms that had kept them enslaved for centuries. You understand the world has never been real friendly to the people of God. And so very quickly this morning, I want to give you a general overview of ancient history. Can y'all handle that? It's going to be quick and painless, I promise. (laughs) I want to give you just sort of a general overview of ancient history, and it goes like this, all right? This is, this is what you paid for uh, in high school to pass your finals, right? You bought cliff notes. If you were smart, you did. Or if you had a good friend, you sat close to them in class. I'm going to give you the cliff notes version of ancient history. You ready? So, so we understand that throughout history, the people sought reconciliation with God, right? After the separation that took place in the garden, after mankind chose his own will, People sought reconciliation with God through the laws, through the priesthood, and through the temple sacrifices given to them by Moses. But all that accomplished, if you were to read the Pentateuch, if you read the history of the people of God, we find out that all that accomplished was it left them in a greater state of condemnation. Because as you've heard me say many times before, you can't legislate righteousness. Again, every parent in the room knows this is true. You can't just say no and a child just go, okay. You say so. You can't write enough laws. Now think about just on a logical scale, you can't write enough laws to make people behave. Am I right? I think we have a few laws on the books today, don't we? We have laws that say don't commit murder, don't steal, right? Don't defraud people. And that works 100% of the time. The fact is it doesn't, and you can't legislate righteousness because the more you say no, the more our self-willed desires and our stubborn will wants to go in the opposite direction. So all the law did was leave them in a greater state of frustration. And the Bible explains it to us like this. 
It says that the law was given that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The law always leaves us lost. The law always leaves us broken. The law always leaves us in a greater state of emptiness and condemnation because the law cannot fill the gap. It can't fulfill the heart and it cannot bring us back into fellowship with God, which is why Paul summarized it in Romans chapter 3 verse 10 by saying there is none righteous, no, not one. There's not a single person that's ever lived and breathed and died on this planet that was perfect, that was sinless, that was holy in and of himself or herself. Every human being is flawed. And so they sought reconciliation through the laws that God gave them in Moses. And certainly they were a temporary band-aid on a cancer, but the reality is that the law just left them feeling even more empty. They sought peace through the rise of mighty kings like David and then later his son Solomon would assume the throne, but the legacy of even their best leaders, their greatest kings in history, was littered with scandal and moral failure. I'm talking about men they built monuments to. Men that today, if you were to journey to Israel, I wouldn't recommend it right now, but if you were to journey to Israel, you would find statues that are still standing of King David. They, they, they revered these great men, these great kings, because they sought redemption. They thought, they thought that someday this king would come and maybe bring them to this point of deliverance where they could live in peace and harmony and prosperity, and all they ever desired was to live in some sense of tranquility once again. And yet their greatest kings, their greatest leaders were moral failures. I'm talking abject failures on the scale of morality. Mighty prophets would arise. Men like Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, great prophets, mighty prophets would arise. And they'd preach messages of condemnation upon the evils of the world. They would articulate visions of destruction upon the madness of mankind's depraved condition, but the words began to sound monotonous and empty because the more that they prophesied, the more that it seemed that their prophecies would never be fulfilled. Divinely inspired psalmists would pen words of hope. We read it throughout David's writings in the Psalms. Words of hope and redemption. David would pin down things like, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? His heart pouring out before God saying, surely, Lord, someday, one day, you're going to make everything right. You're going to take all this nastiness and this brokenness in this world, and you're going to heal it, and you're going to, you're going to come back, and you're going to make everything good. And so they would listen to the Psalms and the divinely inspired songs that were pinned down, and they would have visions of hope and forgiveness and eternal rest. But eventually, their harps started to sound out of tune, and their words, like the words of a death angel, because they just kept harping, but nothing happened. After thousands of years of laws and thousands of years of prophets and promises and visions of hope, the saga of the first half of human history ends in deafening silence. In fact, as we close the, what we know to be the first testament, the Old Testament given by God, the book of Malachi, ends with words of hope that one day God would send his Redeemer that one day God would send hope and, and hear the words of the final prophet in the Old Testament. He says, and he will return the hearts of the fatherless to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with, earth with a curse. That was the final prophecy given in the Old Testament. 
And then for 400 years, do you understand that blank page between your Old Testament and your New Testament, if you're holding a Bible in your lap this morning, that blank page represents 400 years where there was no open vision, there was no prophet, there was no new inspired writings from God. For 400 years, they sat in silence. But then one night, from the dirty stalls of a cattle manger in Bethlehem of Judea, a little baby's cry broke the silence. That baby's voice was unlike any other voice that had ever cried because it was a voice of hope. Something they hadn't heard in 400 years, in the form of a baby's cry, once again they felt a hope and a voice of mercy ringing out that they'd waited for for so long. The people of Israel rejoiced over the rumblings that their king had come. Wise men from afar traveled with gifts to present to him because they believed in their heart that finally, here he was, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the king that was going to deliver Israel, the one, the chosen one, the anointed one, who was going to finally reconcile everything in God's people would finally be at peace, had come in Bethlehem. Imagine with me what it was like the night that Jesus was born. Some have pondered it this way. Somebody said the night when in the Judean skies the mystic star dispensed its light. A blind man moved in his sleep and dreamed that he had sight. That night when shepherds heard the song of host angelic choiring near. A deaf man stirred in slumber spell and dreamed that he could hear. That night when in the cattle stall slept child and mother cheek by jaw, a cripple turned his twisted limbs and dreamed that he was whole. That night when o'er the newborn babe the tender Mary rose to lean, a loathsome leper smiled in his sleep and dreamed that he was clean. That night when to the mother's breast the little king was held secure, a harlot slept a happy sleep. And dreamed that she was pure. That night when in the manger lay the sanctified one who came to save. A man moved in the sleep of death. And dreamed there was no grave. In Bethlehem of Judea. Immaculately conceived by the Holy Spirit. Perfectly God. And perfectly human. Rightly they called him Emmanuel. Which is being interpreted God with us. After all the years of waiting, after all the years of wandering, after all the years of emptiness and what seemed like hollow promises and fleeting hope, the cry of baby Jesus broke the silence and once again brought a glimmer of hope to the darkened heart of humanity. The manger is the first cry we hear that changed the course of the earth. But even though it's the first cry that I want to draw your attention to this morning, we hear the voice of the Son of Man cry out, but that's not where the story ends. The prophet Isaiah informed us that God's Son, unlike what the people of Israel conceived in their minds, unlike what they imagined or perhaps even fantasized their, their great leader would be, Isaiah said that he would be a man of sorrows. 
that he would be despised and rejected, that he would be closely acquainted with grief and pain, that they would hide their faces from him, that even though he was the very manifestation of God in the flesh, even though his name is Emmanuel, even though he's the one that they had waited for, he's the one that the prophets pointed to, his holiness that the law said would come, that he's the very one that they had longed for and waited for, and yet Isaiah said they'd reject him. They would turn away from him. They would, they would turn a deaf ear to his message that he'd be a man who was closely associated with pain. See, the Jews wanted a king to come and destroy their enemies from the earth. The Jews wanted peace for the people of Jerusalem. They wanted prosperity to live on this earth. And yet they failed to recognize that their greatest enemy was not some foreign king that brought slavery and oppression into their land. Their greatest enemy was the enemy that lived in their hearts. And this king had come not to reign on an earthly throne, but to overthrow all the darkness that had, that had been woven into the fabric of their nature. They didn't understand that their greatest enemy was here. They didn't understand that their greatest foe was the man of sin and that their greatest wealth would not be found in this physical world. And as a result... The vast majority of the people of Israel rejected their king. Now, I want you to think about this. I'm going to make a statement that should seem very outlandish. But Jesus didn't live up to their standards. Jesus, whom John says in chapter 1, as we read a moment ago, very articulate the way John laid it out, in the beginning was the Word. The word was with God. The word was God. That word in the Greek is logos. It means divine expression. Jesus was the divine manifestation, the very image of God himself, that this omnipotent, this omniscient, this omnipresent God who cannot be looked upon with the naked eye, that we can't even behold his glory, somehow compressed and condensed himself into the form of a human being and did not come to reign as a king but came as a humble servant. He is the one who bowed and washed the disciples' feet and they could not conceptualize such an idea that a king would come as a humble man and as a servant. He didn't live up to their standards. And Jesus spent the vast majority of his time with the very people the religious elites sought to avoid. They accused him of be, being here and having come to destroy the law and the prophets. And we're talking about Jesus here. Should make you feel a little better if anybody ever gossips behind your back. Finds fault in you for things you haven't done, right? They accused Jesus of being, of having come rather, to destroy the law, the very law that he wrote. They accused him of having come to destroy the law and the prophets. They called Jesus a blasphemer, someone who irreverently takes the name of God and uses it in a blasphemous manner. They accused Jesus of being a false prophet. They even went so far one time to say that Jesus was Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. They went so far as to say that the very one who had come to seek and to save that which was lost was actually a false prophet, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And though he went about doing only good, they despised him, they rejected him, and they placed him on trial before Pilate, the governor of Rome. 
As you recall the story when Jesus stood there before Pilate, the Bible says that Pilate examined him by scourging. That's one of the most low-key statements, I dare say an understatement in the Bible. When it says he was examined by scourging, that scourging was, was not just a, an examination and a cross-examination. That scourging was actually having his hands tied to a whipping post and his body outstretched. And with a cat of nine tails and nine-stranded whip, they thrashed his back 39 times and beat him and mocked him. And the Bible says that they platted a crown of thorns and placed it on his brow and they pressed the thorns uh, down into the crown of his head and they pulled his beard from his face and fistfuls and they plucked the hair from his head. They punched him, they kicked him, they spit upon him, they mocked him, they ridiculed him, they bowed a knee and took a, took a reed as a scepter and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they smacked the crown of thorns deeper into his skull with that very same reed. And then as Pilate brought Jesus there, as he stood there at the praetorium before the Sanhedrin, before his accusers, before the very ones that he loved and leaned upon, the very ones that he healed their, uh, the eyes of their blind, he opened the ears of their death, he raised their dead back to life again as Jesus stood there that day, broken and beaten and tattered and bleeding and wounded, Pilate said to the Jewish people, behold your king. They said, we have no king but Caesar. As it was the custom in those days, at the Passover, someone who had been condemned to die could receive a pardon. There was a man named Barabbas who had been placed on trial, convicted by the evidence, and found guilty of the crime of murder and insurrection who had been appointed that day. It was execution day for Barabbas. Barabbas, by the way, I don't have time to unpack all that this means, but Barabbas means Bar-Abbas, meaning son of the father. He was his daddy's boy, made in his daddy's image, and his lifestyle had gotten him exactly where he was that day. And there, that day, as Pilate pointed to Jesus before the crowd and said, Behold your king, he said, It's your custom that I release one at the Passover feast. Now, Pilate wasn't a Jew. He was a Roman so he couldn't care less about Jewish customs, but he wanted to honor their customs on that day. And he said, listen, I can release someone to you, so here are your options. Here's Jesus, the one who claims to be the king of Israel, the one who claims to be the son of God. I can give you Jesus, or I can give you this man, Barabbas, who's been condemned to die for crimes that he's committed. And here's what the people of Israel had the audacity to chant. They said, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus, let his blood be on us and on our children. What an awful thing to say. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Now watch this. I want, to, I want to throw a little something at you this morning. Because from a surface level, we can get to a point where we think, man, how could the Jews possibly do this? How did they miss it? How could they possibly choose Barabbas, this thief, this liar, this convicted felon, this murderer? How could they possibly choose such a man over one who never committed a crime in his lifetime? Well, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 8, y'all didn't think we were going to completely stay away from there, did you? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 8, it says this. It says, if the powers of this world had known what God would do through their violent execution of the Son of God, 
they never would have crucified him on a cross. See, here's what we fail to recognize. The remainder of Isaiah's prophecy, I quoted a snippet a few moments ago from Isaiah chapter 53 where it says he'd be despised, rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. But Isaiah went on to say that he was wounded for our transgressions, that he was bruised for our iniquities, that the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. What that simply means is in order for man to be reconnected or reconciled or atoned, made one with God again, as it were in the beginning, that something had to happen. Because when God created mankind, as we quoted from Genesis chapter 2, verse number 7, where he reached down, the Bible says, four men of the dust of the ground breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That's the first time we see deity touching humanity. And God infused himself. God infused himself in mankind. We were made in his image. The very breath of God is what gave life to the soul of man. But when man chose his own direction, when man chose his own will over the will of God, man's spirit died and from that moment had been separated from unity with God. And so to bring reconciliation, once again, deity reached down and touched humanity. And as Leviticus chapter 17, verse number 11 tells us, the life of the flesh is in the blood. When the Jews condemned Jesus to die on a cross, no doubt it was one of the greatest, it was the single greatest act of injustice in human history. If you ever want to see how dirty and depraved mankind can be, just look to the cross and look what man did to the only righteous man to ever live. And yet through all the brutality, through all the cruelty, through all the villainy and the viciousness of their depraved nature being poured out on Jesus consecutively right then on that cross at the same time the Spirit of God was there with Jesus and the Father was there with Jesus and the Bible says that God laid on him the iniquity of us all. That he died as our sacrifice. Through their rejection, God wrought redemption. Through their bitterness, God bridged the gap that kept us separated. If they only knew that God would foil their plans by bringing his truth and mercy together on a tree, they would have never crucified him. Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 50, we see the second cry that changed the world. Notice what it says. From the cross, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. As Jesus cried, it is finished. His cry changed the course of our nature. Well might the sun in darkness hide, the songwriter said. When Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. Jesus, the sinless lamb of God, died as our sacrifice, stepped into our place as our advocate, and became the bridge that brought us back to a place of fellowship with the Father. See, what the law couldn't do, 
what the prophets couldn't produce, what no religious institution, no priesthood, no catechism, no book of, no book of laws or standards or checklists could do for us, what we could never do on our own in one fell swoop. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus did on our behalf. And now all those who put their faith and their trust in him once again receive the breath of life from God and were redeemed and were reconciled and were regenerated and were given brand new life because of what Christ did. When he cried from the cross, the veil was torn and the separation was abolished forever. And now whosoever will may come and drink of the fountain of life freely. The first cry that changed the world was the cry of a baby in Bethlehem's manger and it broke the silence. The second cry of Jesus broke the curse of sin from the earth. And you know the story. They laid his broken body in the tomb of a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. His bruised and tattered body laid there lifeless for three dark days and three dark nights. But after three days, we're told that the ground began to quake, that the stone that was set to seal the mouth of the tomb, was rolled back in the rock of ages, walked out alive as King of kings and Lord of lords, having conquered death, hell, and the grave on our behalf. And he arose from the dead to bring victory and life and justification to all those who would come to him by faith. We understand that after his resurrection, we're told, the Bible says that he walked the earth for 40 days with his disciples. And on the 40th day, 10 days before Pentecost in Acts chapter number 2, after his resurrection, standing on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem with the disciples, they watched as Jesus, in bodily form, in his resurrected glory, began to ascend back into the heavens. And we read in Acts chapter 1, verse number 11, where the angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up into heaven? Now watch, this same Jesus, which was taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go. Now the disciples did exactly what all of us would be doing if we watched Jesus levitate up through the clouds. They stood there with their mouths gaping and their eyes wide open. They had no idea in a flabbergasted state of mind what was going on. And the angel said, hold on, boys. This same Jesus, you watched him as he healed Bartimaeus. You watched him as he raised Lazarus from the dead. You watched him and witnessed as he walked on water. You watched as his voice commanded the storm to lay down. You watched every miracle that he's ever done. You watched in, in agony and defeat as he died on the cross. You were there when his body was placed in the grave. You saw him resurrect from the dead. And now, trust me, he's going to return just as you've seen him leave. This same Jesus, which was taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go. But hear me out. That was 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. And here we are, once again in silence. Not 400 years, 2,000 years of silence. Of silence. But one day, there's going to be another cry at the midnight hour. <laughs> it's going to go something like this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 says, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, 
The dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which are alive or remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. His first cry broke the silence. His second cry broke the curse. His third cry is going to break the clouds when he calls us home to be with him, and he's going to right all the wrong, and he's going to heal all the hurt, and he's going to reunite all those who've been separated by death. Jesus is coming again, and he's going to take us home to be with him forever and forever and forever, and he's going to rule and reign as king of kings on the throne where he belongs. And there'll be peace and tranquility forever, as evil is finally vanquished, as all the wrong is finally reconciled, as every crooked thing is finally made straight, as every injustice is finally made right. Jesus is coming again. His cries change the world. But this morning, there's another cry that could change your world. See, because just as God made us in the beginning, with a volition, a free will, you have the right to make decisions. You get to make your own choices. That's God's gift to you. God didn't make you a mindless puppet on a string. God didn't make you some automaton, some drone that can't think for himself or herself. God gave you a free will. God gave you the ability to make decisions. And so today, having done all that he's done, God has just simply given an invitation. And he said, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, you're burdened down. You've carried the weight of this world on your shoulders for so long. You've dealt with all your issues, your problems. You've bore the weight of your own skeletons. You've made bad decisions, and you live with the regret of those decisions. He said, I want all of you who are hurting, all of you who are lost, all of you who are broken, all of you who are empty in your heart. You know nothing has ever filled that gap, that emptiness. Nothing has ever made you whole. He said, I want you to come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said in Isaiah chapter 1, verse number 18, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet. He said, I know what you've done. I know where you've been. I know who you are right here. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be as wool. He said, if you would come to me, I would take all the blackness, all the darkness, all the shame, and I would abolish it from your life, and I would give you new hope. I would put my spirit in you. I will abide with you. I'll dwell with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You say, what do I have to do? Join a church? No. Become religious, do better? Nope. You simply come to him in faith. Because salvation is not a goal achieved, it's a gift received from the good hand of God that he extends to lost, broken people like you and like me. And all who come find redemption through the sacrifice of his son. So the choice today that you'll make is to realize that the greatest gift ever given wasn't wrapped up and placed under a tree. The greatest gift ever given to man was nailed to a cross. And through his death, through his suffering, he brings us life.
and offers us hope. Let's all stand together this morning. Father, in the name of Jesus, we submit ourselves before you, God. I pray that you work in every single heart today. Every person has a unique need. They're in a different place in life. But Father, I pray that wherever they are on this journey, they would find your presence. God, that they would hear your voice, that they would respond to you. I'm not going to put any more pressure than I already have on the people under the sound of my voice today, but I pray that you would stand right there with them. God, that you would trouble the waters of their heart, that you would help them to see their need today, to come to faith in you, that you would speak as only you can draw that one which is lost. And God, save today as only you can. Father, give comfort to the hurting. Fill the hearts of those who feel empty today. In Jesus' name we pray. There is a king seated among us. Let every heart receive him now. Where there is praise, he will inhabit. And there will be grace and mercy on Be at home. This war will be over.